Hello, I'm Lavnia Rajamni, Professor of International Environmental Law at the University of Oxford and Yamani Fellow in Public International Law at St. Peter's College. The topic of my lecture today is the international climate change regime, in particular ways in which it has evolved and the challenges such evolution has brought in its wake. No environmental crisis in living memory has captured the popular imagination in quite so dramatic a fashion as the threat of climate change. Our consciousness has been flooded in recent times with images of starving polar bears, melting glaciers, bleaching corals, sinking islands, raging wildfires, and perhaps most disturbingly, thawing copses of climbers on Mount Everest. And calls for action have grown ever stronger, from children striking school across the world to investors divesting from fossil fuels, activists, occupying oil rigs, flying drones into Heathrow Airport, and gluing themselves to stock exchanges. If the threat of climate change, characterized as the defining issue of our age by successive UN Secretary Generals, is the issue that will define the contours of the century more dramatically than any other, and I'm quoting erstwhile US President Obama here, then our response to it will define us as a civilization. Yet, the nations of this world have struggled to provide a definitive collective response to the threat of climate change. Although the international community has been in negotiations for over three decades and produced three legally binding treaties in this time, it has at best made a dent in business as usual. And under current policy scenarios, we are headed for global warming of 3.2 degrees centigrade by 2100 a level at which there will be calamitous impacts. This lecture introduces the international climate change regime, humanity's collective regulatory response to the existential threat of climate change. It will begin by providing a brief overview of the science that underpins the regime and the political context that shapes the negotiated outcomes of this regime. It will next introduce the three treaties that form the core of the climate change regime and then focus on distinctive aspects of the 2015 Paris Agreement that represents a step change from the past. These three aspects are the architecture of the Paris Agreement, the character of obligations within it, and the nature of differentiation it contains. In all three respects, the Paris Agreement reflects creative hybridity. And the particular design choices that resulted in this creative hybridity were a result of experimentation in the climate change regime, born perhaps of political dysfunction, but nevertheless remarkable for the ingenuity that it displays. This lecture will close by identifying particular challenges that arise as a result of these design choices which leaves the achievement of the overall objective of the climate change regime uncertain and humanity's fate in the balance. First, the science. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, is the United Nations body tasked with assessing the science relating to climate change. It has produced five assessment reports since its establishment in 1988. These reports each with greater certainty than the last, find that climate change is real, it is happening, and it is happening as a result of human activity. In its latest assessment report, 
the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change finds the warming of the climate system is unequivocal. And in its special report on 1.5 degrees centigrade, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change found that human activities are estimated to have caused approximately one degree of global warming above pre-industrial levels. Recent data indicates that the past five years collectively have been the warmest years in modern record, with 20 of the warmest years occurring in the last 22 years. This represents a consistent and incontrovertible warming trend. Emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere are also at record levels. Again, according to the IPCC, many of these changes are unprecedented over decades to millennia and have caused impacts on natural and human systems on all continents and across the oceans. In the words of Petteri Talas, the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization, the science is clear. Without rapid cuts in CO2 and other greenhouse gases, climate change will have increasingly destructive and irreversible impacts on life on Earth. The window of opportunity for action is almost closed. As the science has become more certain and the impacts more tangible, the issue of climate change has garnered increasing political salience. The UN climate change negotiations launched in 1990 attracted a handful of states and a few thousand participants in the early years, but today attracts more heads of state than any other multilateral treaty process and well over 20,000 participants. In 1995, at the first conference of parties to the Framework Convention on Climate Change in Berlin, there were 4,000 participants and at the 2015 Paris conference, there were 38,000 participants and 150 heads of state. Notwithstanding the increasing political salience of climate change and the exponential scaling up of negotiating capital and investment, the issue of climate change has proven remarkably resistant to resolution. There are many reasons for this resistance to resolution. First, climate change poses a complex polycentric and super-wicked policy challenge. Climate change is caused by a variety of production and consumption processes. Its causes and effects are global and require complex collective action. It can be addressed only if all the major greenhouse gas emitters are willing to undertake costly, large-scale transformations in their economic and energy systems. Yet, since the benefits of climate change mitigation are shared by the international community and do not accrue just to those that take action, the major emitters have little incentive to act on their own. Second, such transformations require buy-in from citizens and corresponding willingness to modify behavioral patterns, adjust lifestyles, and rethink development aspirations. It demands change and sacrifice. Climate change, intricately involved as it is in a state's domestic policies, has consequences for economic and social development, energy access and use, agricultural practices, mobility, and urban planning. In many countries, especially developing ones where basic needs are a legitimate priority, there is limited buy-in for costly transformations because these costly transformations have opportunity costs in terms of investments in poverty eradication, energy access, and other developmental and infrastructural needs. 
In other countries, there is a lingering, politically consequential vein of climate skepticism and denial, fueled by powerful lobbies and bolsters by right-wing populist governments. Even if there is acceptance of the climate science, some societies are reluctant to take the necessary lifestyle changes to eradicate climate change, preferring to focus instead on silver bullet technological fixes that pose little threat to their bubble of complacency. Finally, at the irresolvable core of international climate politics is the issue of equity and fairness between developed and developing countries and between those responsible for triggering climate change and those on the front lines of its impacts. States have fundamentally different national circumstances, resources, greenhouse gas emission profiles and vulnerabilities, and differing views on fair burden sharing. Historically, cumulative emissions from developed countries are about 2.3 times that of developing countries. Many developing countries argue that this requires developed countries to take the lead in ambitious climate mitigation and in financing and supporting developing countries. Yet, Annual emissions from developing countries are now 60% of the total global carbon dioxide emissions, and emissions from large developing countries are projected to keep increasing. In fact, the 2018 World Energy Outlook predicts a doubling of electricity demand from developing countries, with corresponding increases in CO2 emissions. In 2005, China surpassed the US as the world's largest annual emitter of CO2. In 2017, its share of global emissions was 27% compared to 13% for the US and 9% for the European Union. It is clear that climate change cannot effectively be addressed without ambitious mitigation action from large developing countries. In any case, since much of the infrastructure in developing countries is yet to be built, there are opportunities for avoiding carbon locking. Developing countries, however, have historically been resistant to mitigation commitments. They argue that their per capita emissions are low and likely to grow to meet their social and development needs. India's per capita, for instance, CO2 emissions at 1.8 tons is significantly below the US average of 15.7 tons. China's per capita emissions of 7.7 tons exceeds those of the EU at 6.9 tons but both remain significantly below US per capita emissions. Further, notwithstanding some blurring of the lines between the categories of developed and developing countries, there are persistent inequalities between those living in developed and developing countries. And many developing countries have yet to provide energy access to all their citizens. An estimated 1.1 billion people, 14% of the world's population, do not have access to electricity, and while rapid gains are being made in countries like India, an estimated 700 million people, predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa, are projected to remain without electricity in 2040. For many developing countries, the burden of addressing energy poverty is crippling. While they have opportunity to do so in sustainable ways, there are potential cost implications. Another critical dimension of the equity debate is that countries primarily responsible for causing climate change are not the ones that will be the most adversely affected. Small island states, for instance, have begun to lose their territories to rising sea levels, and they have a compelling reason to act. 
Yet, since their greenhouse gas emissions are inconsequential, their actions will have limited impact on the trajectory of global warming. And they have very little, apart from the model, high ground as leverage in negotiations that often descend into deals between major emitters. There are others that are economically dependent on fossil fuels and have high per capita greenhouse gas emissions. And these countries have compelling reasons for inaction in the climate change negotiations. It is in this deeply contentious political context that the climate change regime is set and must be understood. The international climate change regime comprises three legally binding instruments negotiated under the auspices of the United Nations. The climate change regime also consists of rules, principles, mechanisms, and institutions created under these treaties. And this entire architecture of rules, principles, mechanisms, institutions, and instruments is set within a wider complex of regulatory instruments, regimes, and institutions that over time have come to address climate change. The focus of this lecture, however, is on these three instruments and the rules and principles that have evolved under those instruments. The three instruments in the international climate change regime are the 1992 Framework Convention on Climate Change, the 1997 Kyoto Protocol, and the 2015 Paris Agreement. The 1992 Framework Convention on Climate Change records an early agreement among parties on the urgency and importance of addressing climate change. It identifies an objective, stabilization of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. It introduces general principles to guide state behavior, in particular the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities, which is a central conceptual pillar of the climate change regime. It introduces a basic set of obligations, including reporting obligations for all countries and greenhouse gas stabilization obligations for developed countries listed in Annex 1 to the Framework Convention on Climate Change. It also establishes skeletal institutional frameworks, including for the provision of finance and technology transfer to developing countries. Building on this, the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement as related legal instruments introduce specific targeted measures reflecting different and distinctive approaches to global climate regulation. The 1997 Kyoto Protocol establishes substantive greenhouse gas mitigation obligations, collective and individual, for developed countries set to timetables. Thus, developed countries listed in Annex B to the protocol are collectively required to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions to 5.2% below 1990 levels in the first commitment period of 2008 to 2012. Developed countries also have individual targets listed in Annex B. These greenhouse gas emission reduction obligations are complemented with procedural obligations in relation to reporting and review and a compliance system with an enforcement branch and penalties for non-compliance. But the protocol does provide flexibility to parties in how they meet these greenhouse gas emission targets. In particular, it allows them to use three market-based instruments, the Clean Development Mechanism, Joint Implementation and Emissions Training. The 2015 Paris Agreement marks a step change from the Kyoto Protocol in several respects. Before I discuss the Paris Agreement, I'd like to touch briefly on the factors that catalyze these fundamental shifts in the evolution of the climate change regime. In 2001, the US rejected the Kyoto Protocol in part because, and I'm quoting 
former US President Bush. It exempts 80% of the world, including major population centers such as China and India from compliance, and would cause serious harm to the US economy. The US rejection of the Kyoto Protocol did not immediately trigger a global abandonment of the Kyoto Protocol. Indeed, the protocol entered into force, albeit only in 2005, eight years after its adoption. However, it did sound the death knell for the Kyoto Protocol that over time lost its constituents. The Kyoto Protocol's first commitment period, running from 2008 to 2012, covered 24% of 2010 global emissions, while its second commitment period, running from 2013 to 2020, with several developed countries having opted out, including Canada, Japan, and Russia, only covers about 11% of global emissions. Clearly, this model of global climate regulation with limited coverage of global emissions was not going to deliver a stable climate. Aspects of this model that proved challenging for some parties were its prescriptive nature, with legally binding obligations of result for developed country parties, and the nature and extent of differentiation it contained, with such legally binding obligations of result only for developed countries and not for developing ones. The Kyoto Protocol reflects what has been characterized in the scholarly literature as a deep, then broad approach, in that parties chose to begin with deep, that is strong and stringent commitments for a few countries with the hope that over time, a larger number of countries would take on such commitments. And it is only at that point that the ultimate objective of the regime would be within sight. This proved to be a futile hope. The politics did not permit an expansion of the Kyoto Protocol regime to developing countries, and even some developed countries, both because of the prescriptive nature of the targets that the Kyoto Protocol contained as well as because of the extent of differentiation it contained in favor of developing countries, had come to distance themselves from the Kyoto Protocol. Any agreement on climate change negotiated in the aftermath of the Kyoto Protocol had to address both the prescriptive nature of the greenhouse gas commitments, as well as the extent of differentiation in favor of developing countries. The 2015 Paris Agreement, which took four years to negotiate and was several years in the making, was one of the most complex, contentious, and challenging negotiating processes in living memory. And it seeks to do exactly this, address both the prescriptive nature of commitments as well as the extent of differentiation in favor of developing countries. It reflects a step change from the Kyoto Protocol in several respects. I will focus on three. First, in relation to the architecture of the Paris Agreement. The 2015 Paris Agreement reflects a hybrid architecture that contains both bottom-up and top-down elements. At its core, the Paris Agreement requires countries to prepare, communicate, and maintain nationally determined contributions every five years. These contributions are, as the term clearly indicates, nationally determined not internationally negotiated, and thus reflects a bottom-up approach to climate change governance. The Kyoto Protocol, in sharp contrast, contains greenhouse gas mitigation targets that, although were based on initial national offers, were ultimately internationally negotiated. These bottom-up nationally determined contributions in the Paris Agreement 
are complemented by an internationally negotiated top-down oversight system. The oversight system consists of an enhanced transparency framework that requires parties to provide information both to clarify their contributions as well as to track their progress in implementing and achieving their nationally determined contributions. A global stock take is another aspect of the oversight system. A global stock take is scheduled every five years to assess collective progress towards long-term goals. The first of these global stock takes will take place in 2023 and it is designed to assess collective progress, not individual progress. The third element of the oversight system is a facilitative implementation and compliance mechanism. It does not, unlike the Kyoto Protocol, have an enforcement branch or penalties for non-compliance. The hybrid architecture of the Paris Agreement, with bottom-up nationally determined contributions and a top-down oversight system, is, is expected to generate progressively ambitious contributions that will eventually meet the objective of the agreement to hold the increase in global average temperature to well below 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. The Paris Agreement reflects what has come to be characterized in the scholarly literature as a broad then deep approach, in that parties chose to begin with broad coverage, that is, shallow commitments for all countries, in the hope that over time countries would iteratively deepen their commitments. And it is only at that point that the ultimate objective of the regime would be in sight. The second distinctive aspect of the Paris Agreement, which reflects a step change from the Kyoto Protocol, is the carefully crafted legal character of many of its provisions. Article 4.2, the centerpiece of the Paris Agreement, is an example. Article 4.2 obliges parties to prepare, communicate, and maintain nationally determined contributions. And it does so in mandatory terms. It uses language such as each party shall prepare, communicate, and maintain nationally determined contributions. This is a hard obligation in that it sets precise standards for state behavior and it lends itself to assessments of compliance and non-compliance. Indeed, this is one of the obligations that the Paris Agreement's compliance mechanism explicitly addresses, as fleshed out in the Paris Rulebook adopted in 2018. Article 4.2 contains a procedural obligation, in that the obligation is to prepare, communicate, and maintain nationally determined contributions, not to undertake a specified nationally determined contribution, such as a quantified emission limitation and reduction commitment. This procedural obligation, however, is subject to a good faith expectation that parties intend to achieve these nationally determined contributions. The Paris Agreement does not dictate to parties what their nationally determined contributions should be or how they should implement them. Rather, it requires them to follow a series of discrete procedures designed to shine light on how parties arrive at their self-selected contributions, what these contributions are, and what steps parties are taking to implement and achieve these contributions. This represents a decisive shift from the Kyoto Protocol that prescribed the commitments parties were to take, albeit based on parties' offers, it provided for their monitoring, 
and dictated consequences for their non-compliance. The Kyoto Protocol also contains several procedural obligations in relation to the provision of information and accounting, but in the protocol, these obligations bolster and complement the core substantive greenhouse gas mitigation obligations. They are not a substitute for them. Further, the objectives of the greenhouse gas mitigation targets identified in parties' nationally determined contributions are subject to obligations of effort, not to obligations of result. Article 4.2, second sentence reads, parties shall pursue domestic mitigation measures with the aim of achieving the objectives of such contributions. Parties are obliged to pursue domestic mitigation measures. This is a substantive obligation, but only with the aim of achieving the objectives of the nationally determined contributions. So Article 4.2's first sentence obliges parties to submit nationally determined contributions, and its second sentence obliges parties to pursue domestic mitigation measures. Parties are not obliged, however, to meet the objectives, targets, or goals identified in their nationally determined contributions only to exercise best efforts to do so. This, too, is a dramatic departure from the Kyoto Protocol that imposes obligations of result on parties, not obligations of conduct. The third distinctive aspect of the Paris Agreement that again reflects a departure from the Kyoto Protocol model is the nature of differentiation it contains. The 2015 Paris Agreement reflects tailored or nuanced differentiation in that different issue areas in the Paris Agreement reflect different forms of differentiation. In the context of greenhouse gas mitigation commitments, the Paris Agreement embraces a form of differentiation that has come to be characterized as self-differentiation. In that, since greenhouse gas mitigation contributions are nationally determined, every country naturally has a different commitment to every other country, and this constitutes a form of self-differentiation. Such self-differentiation is constrained by normative expectations. Most importantly, the expectation that these contributions that parties put forward will reflect common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities in light of different national circumstances. Nevertheless, the fact remains that in relation to mitigation contributions, there is no multilaterally agreed burden-sharing arrangement implemented in the Paris Agreement. Rather, nations have autonomy not just in choosing their own contributions, but also in determining that these contributions reflect a fair contribution to the global effort. There is a combination thus of self-selection of contributions with a self-determination that these contributions are fair and equitable. Such differentiation in the area of greenhouse gas mitigation obligations reflects a step change from the 1997 Kyoto Protocol that implemented a multilaterally agreed burden-sharing arrangement that matched particular categories of parties to particular categories of commitments. Developed countries listed in Kyoto Annex B had greenhouse gas mitigation targets set to timetables, backed by a compliance system with an enforcement branch and penalties for non-compliance. Developing countries did not. Such differentiation, as I have indicated earlier, 
proved deeply controversial and ultimately unsustainable. The embrace of self-differentiation in the Paris Agreement reflects an attempt to avoid the contentious exercise of categorizing parties and matching them to particular commitments. These distinctive shifts in the climate change regime in relation to architecture, in relation to the character of obligations it contains, and in relation to differentiation, while innovative, pose particular challenges in terms of meeting the long-term goals of the Paris Agreement in an inclusive and fair manner. And it leaves the achievement of the overall objective of the climate change regime uncertain and humanity's fate in the balance. I would like to highlight two of these challenges, one of adequacy and the other of equity. First, the challenge of adequacy. The architecture of the Paris Agreement and the character of obligations within it that privilege national autonomy has resulted in nationally determined contributions that are well out of kilter with the temperature goal identified in the Paris Agreement, that is, holding temperature increase to well below 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. The 2018 Emissions Gap Report finds that current nationally determined contributions put the world on a path to global warming of about 3.2 degrees centigrade by 2100, with warming continuing afterwards. They also found that if the emissions gap is not closed by 2030, the goal of a well below 2 degrees centigrade temperature increase will be well out of reach. At these levels of temperature increases, the IPCC tells us that there will be severe, pervasive, and irreversible impacts. The design of the Paris Agreement thus does not guarantee adequacy of efforts, that is, that the bottom-up will add up. Second, the challenge of equity. Self-differentiation, as I have described, deftly sidesteps the contentious and seemingly irresolvable issue of burden sharing in the international climate change regime. Since states self-determine their mitigation commitments and self-justify how these are fair and equitable, there is limited scope for a multilateral determination of whether countries are doing as much as they should given their responsibilities and capabilities. While self-differentiation might have been the pragmatic choice to enable parties to reach agreement in Paris in 2015, the climate regime as it has evolved has limited and rather ineffectual avenues for addressing concerns about equity and fairness. And this is likely to lead to lingering discontent and discord. While Kyoto-style differentiation may well have been a blunt instrument to guide burden-sharing between nations, the shift towards self-differentiation in the Paris Agreement may prove to be an equally blunt response to a profoundly complex issue. The climate change regime, as it has evolved, therefore, has to address both the adequacy gap in terms of the ambition of greenhouse gas mitigation contributions, as well as the equity gap in terms of sharing the burden of climate regulation. The success of this broad, then deep model of global climate governance hinges on iterative deepening of greenhouse gas commitments from countries over time. The climate change regime may well need to rely on actors and institutions and stimulus not just from within but from outside the regime to assist in this process of deepening. 
While much remains to be done in terms of ensuring the adequacy and fairness of the climate change regime, this regime has also taken tremendous strides in the three decades it has been in the making, and it is on that positive note that I would like to conclude. The climate change regime has in these three decades brought 197 states to a recognition of the seriousness and scale of the climate change threat and the need to take concerted action to address it. In doing so, it has demonstrated an ability to constantly reinvent itself, craft and use innovative tools, techniques, and even tricks that have enriched the core of treaty law and practice. It has also dramatically increased the salience of the climate change problem, helped generate tremendous attention, concern, and political will, and triggered policy shifts across the world, which I hope and trust will catalyze a virtuous dynamic of ever more ambitious action, which will eventually bring national policies and action in line with a climate-safe planet. Thank you.